but heaven is coming down to the world. Oh, I don't know what you've been told, but heaven is coming down to the world. Oh, heaven. see the sun there to our right, now approaching the sun, and you can see the Orion Nebula there past the sun. As we pass the sun, we're probably going over a hundred times the speed of light. And approaching Orion, the individual stars will be passing at different times because they're at different distances from the Earth. But it's actually in the sword of Orion, the middle star of the sword of Orion is the Orion Nebula. We're approaching it here, coming closer, coming closer. The Orion Nebula is 1,500 light years from the Earth. That cavern is actually 100 light years wide. You go into the center of that cavern, we're circling around the trapezium cluster here. This is actually something you can see with the home telescope if you're interested in looking at it. You won't see the nebulosity, but you will see the trapezium. Going through the trapezium, continuing past the trapezium as we come to heaven, to the city of New Jerusalem with the foundations of uh, precious stones, the gates of pearl. Approaching now to the temple in the New Jerusalem. The sanctuary. And as we go to the sanctuary, what are we going to end up with? There is indeed right before us, Christ the great high priest. And, and the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. It's right before the throne of God. Jesus Christ himself, the author of them all, ministering before the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. David, then after we are there, what's going to happen in return? Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, now that's the time we talked about last week when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the, in the wilderness. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is this Greek word metanoia. It literally means change your mind. Uh, repent, stop it. The kingdom of heaven is not 1,500 light years away in the Orion Nebula. Someone sent me that video this week. At first, I thought it was a joke, and I researched it, and it's not. It's these two scholars in California that are, have PhDs in science and theology or something that have this theory that the center of the universe is actually the Orion Nebula. And so, of course, the throne of God would be in the um, Orion Nebula. Next in the video, the narrator na narrates how Jesus is going to come out of the Holy of Holies and, and back to earth and the clapping just in increases. I, I love, I love the, the clapping. But Jesus says, stop it. Just stop it. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is not 1,500 light years away, and the kingdom of heaven is not 2,000 years, earth years, in the future, sometime after the publication of the Left Behind series. And the kingdom of heaven is not 5,000 miles away, somewhere in the Middle East. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Egizo. It's, it's this Greek word based on another word that all comes from a word that is, means the crook of the arm. Like you could put it in a headlock. It literally means 
at hand. So if the kingdom of heaven comes, it's coming from someplace a lot, 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 lot closer than 1,500 light years away. Heaven is the Greek word uranos, also translated atmosphere or, or air. So the birds of the uranos, the birds of the air, for instance, in Acts chapter 10, are literally birds of, of, of heavens. Folks knew that stuff could come down from the heavens like a bird, and yet in the heavens we live, move, and have our being. Just as Paul said, in God we live, move, and have our, our being. Just as we're surrounded by spirit, pneuma, breath, same, same word, translated wind. Well, well, the kingdom of heaven, which is the kingdom of God, who is spirit, is at hand. It's very, very near. Hopefully remember that the last temptation of the devil was to offer to Jesus all the kingdoms of this world. But Jesus knew the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all the kingdoms of this world are not the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, a kingdom that comes like the kingdoms of this world with guns and rules and tanks and ammunition and uh, regulations and lawyers is not the kingdom of God. Those kingdoms are not the kingdom. They're just more like a crowd. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread. He became famous. His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, the ten cities on the other side of the sea, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. These are great crowds of Jews and Gentiles. This is basically what the devil offered him in the wilderness. And this is basically what we would call a smashing success. I mean, it's just the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and already uh, great, great crowds. This sets the all-time record for church growth. I mean, I think we would, I think my seminary professors would say, certainly domination leaders, we, we would all say, Yahoo, Jesus, way to go, Jesus, don't stop. Next verse. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and sat down. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Crowds attract crowds. You know that, right? When you see a crowd, you're like, ooh, I better go be a part of that, whatever's going on. Crowds attract crowds, but his disciples came to him. Jesus had a rather ambivalent relationship with the crowd. Verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Literally, literally translated. I mean, it's really clear. He said, of them is the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty at hand. Well, anyway, Jesus knew that the kingdom is not the crowd. Jesus had a rather ambivalent relationship with the crowd. You remember in the Gospel of John, the crowd chases Jesus to make him king. Remember that? And, and he ran away. He literally got in a boat, went to the other side of the sea. Um, the crowd chases him to make him king. They want to make him in their own image, and he runs away. He runs away, and then the crowd finds him on the other side of the sea. They surround him, and, and then do you remember what happens? He teaches them away. He, he says this in John 6, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood 
has eternal life. He freaks them out, and at that, they all, they all leave. And then he turns to the 12, turns to Peter the, and Andrew, those, those guys, and he says, are you going to go too? At the end of the gospel, the crowds chant Hosanna to the King of Kings, and then six days later, in the first, in the first recorded, at least as far as I can figure, first recorded democratic election in the Bible, the crowd votes for Barabbas. But for Jesus, they all chant, crucify, crucify, crucify. That was after Jesus refused to give a sign, and crowds seek signs. That's what Luke tells us. The crowds wanted a sign. Jesus had already said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. But you see, a faithful disciple seeks what the signs point to. Jesus sat down, writes Matthew, and his disciples came to him. Crowds seek signs, and crowds think that a crowd is a sign, when in fact, it's nothing. Soren Kierkegaard wrote this. The crowd is like an envelope. One receives a, a large package, an envelope, and thinks it's something important, but look, it's a package of envelopes. An envelope of envelopes, we think it's so important because it's so large and, and there's just so many, but each envelope contains nothing. You know, evil is ultimately nothing. It's an absence of, of truth. And perhaps that's why crowds are so dangerous. They can so easily be governed and inhabited by evil, and they have the power to make everyone just the same. Now, no doubt you have noticed my beautiful tie. In 1973, everyone knew, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this tie was beautiful. Everyone wore ties like this. Everyone looked like this. This was my father's tie. I, I remember hoping that I could find a picture with this actual tie in it, but, but I, I didn't. But I, I, I remembered at the time, it just seemed so obviously true to me, this tie is righteous. This tie is beautiful, this tie is true, this tie is good, this tie, this, this tie is right! What did you say? Oh, those pants are right too. <laughs> I think it meant these pants. I was then I freak out like, oh crap, my zipper's down or something, but. At the time, it seemed obvious to everyone, it seemed obvious to me, this tie is right, but no, it was fashion. It was nothing but the opinion of the crowd. Be careful when people say the Democrats are right or the Republicans are right or the Arabs are right or the Israelis are right or the Americans are right or the Baptists are right or the Presbyterians are right. Jesus said only one is right. Crowds are enticing because they can make you feel so right. <laughs> Even if you are entirely wrong. They make you feel like you belong, but one day you realize that you are no longer you. You don't belong because you have ceased to exist. Crowds are enticing, but ultimately dehumanizing, deadening, and, and debilitating because they turn you into one more envelope. We choose crowds, and crowds make us incapable of choosing. Just watch our partisan politics, if you're not following my, my drift here. But I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about everything. We choose crowds, and crowds make us incapable of choosing. In a crowd, everyone looks the same and is devoid of content. Crowds make you, in their own image, one more envelope full of nothing. God also makes you in his image, but not one more envelope, and definitely not full of nothing, but full of an incredible something. God wants to make us in his image, but definitely not all, all the same. And, and I think that's why Jesus sat down. I think that's why Jesus sat down. He sat down, and his disciples came to him because he called them. He called them with his word, and his word found a place in them. Now that's a little esoteric, right? What does that mean? Well, I think Jesus just, 
uh, showed us what that, what that means. He, he didn't just call more of them, more disciples, like you'd add one more envelope to a package of envelopes. He called them individually by name. Before we read about the crowds, we read about uh, four men named Simon Peter. That's one guy. Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they didn't choose Jesus until Jesus had chosen them. He even tells his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You know, that's the point of the doctrine of election. God chose. It's not that God chose you and God didn't choose someone else, but that God chose you long before you were capable of of choosing God. God chose you to choose him in freedom. So if you freely choose to follow him, it's because God chose you to choose before time even began. He chose you. He's the creator. Maybe you heard that. He chose you. And by you, I do not mean one more envelope in a package of envelopes. One more vote, one more giving unit, one more butt to fill up one more seat at the sanctuary Denver. But you, the person, the individual psyche, that's Greek for the individual soul, you with a name like Peter, Andrew, James, or John, you with a unique story, a history like Peter, Matthew, Paul, or even Judas, you with unique gifts and limitations, disappointments, and dreams. See, I think it's hugely significant that Jesus says to Peter, for instance, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. He doesn't say, follow me, and I will make you an administrator of men. He doesn't say, follow me, and I'll give you a a doctorate and make you pope, because fishing's stupid. He doesn't say, follow me, and I'll make you a carpenter of men like me, you know, building the house of God. He says, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Jesus sees Peter fishing. He says, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. I would imagine that Peter grew up around fishing. Even as a boy, he dreamed of being a fisherman. He certainly dreamed of catching fish. At the end of the Gospel of John, you know, when everything falls apart, remember what Peter does? He goes fishing. It's like who he is. When I was a kid, I dreamed of being Zorro. I remember I'd always grab a towel out of the closet, put it on my back, get a, get a stick, hold it in my hand, and everywhere I went, I'd make that Zorro sign. I dreamed of being Zorro, and everywhere I went, I made the sign. And then I stopped. Other kids thought Zorro wasn't cool. John Wayne and James Bond were cool. Zorro, pathetic. Later, I dreamed of adventure and discovery. I dreamed of boldly going where no man had ever gone before. Every day after school, I'd watch Star Trek reruns and dream of being Captain Kirk. But at school, I'd have to hide those dreams from the crowd because they seemed pathetic. At school, everyone demanded, the crowd demanded that everyone dressed just the same, spoke just the same, excelled at being just the same. Anything else was pathetic. And that person was just a pretender. You ever been to a Star Trek convention? Middle-aged men with pot bellies dressed like Captain Kirk, dreaming that they could boldly go where no man had gone before, dreaming that they could save the galaxy from evil. Freak show, man. Oh, this is hilarious. Bunch of losers begging for autographs at 15 bucks a pop. These guys haven't had a real acting job for 20 years. This is all they've got. Dude, did you check out Nesmith? He actually gets oh, yeah. off on those retards thinking he's a space commander. Yeah. Oh, and his friends? I know, they can't stand him. Did you hear him ragging on him in there? Dude, he has no idea. He's a laughing stock, even to his buddies. It's pathetic. Oh, come on, come on. The Galaxy Quest dancers are almost on. Ooh. Full speed ahead, Lieutenant. <laughs> hey, Commander, uh, so 
As I was saying, um, in the Quasar Dilemma, remember you used the auxiliary of deck B for, could you get this? Deck B for Gamma Override. The thing is, is that online blueprints clearly indicate that deck B is independent of the guidance matrix. So we were wondering just where the error lies in that. It's just a television show, that's all, okay? <laughs> right, but because we were wondering if the quantum flux, and I just listen on this. There is no quantum flux. There's no auxiliary. There's no goddamn ship. You got it? So that was Jason Nesmith who just walked away, who played Commander Peter Taggart on the canceled TV show Galaxy Quest. He'd always been an actor, but now he only acted at Galaxy Quest conventions where he and other pathetic losers could you know, create their own little crowd. Sometimes church can kind of feel like a Galaxy Quest convention. Not a personal conviction, but our own little crowd to protect us from other crowds. Sometimes church can feel a little bit like a Galaxy Quest convention. We talk about battling the ancient dragons, saving the world by swinging the sword of truth, and we dream of being the bride of Christ, the king of kings. Pathetic? I'm sure that sometimes to you, sometimes to us, maybe uh, to others, that, that just seems a little pathetic. And that's why I love the movie Galaxy Quest. It turns out that an alien civilization perhaps 150 or 1,500 light years away, perhaps somewhere in the Orion Nebula, I don't know. But anyway, this alien civilization, the Thermians, have been receiving transmission of galaxy TV shows in outer space and mistaking them for historical documents. It's like a society that can't lie. But mistaking them for historical documents, they built an entire civilization around the Galaxy Quest TV show. But now, threatened by the evil Emperor Ceres, who looks like an ancient dragon, they send emissaries to Earth in order to find the brave commander Peter Taggart and his courageous, resourceful, and genius crew to come save them from certain destruction. Drunk, delirious, thinking it's all an act, Jason follows the Thermians, who then beam him up to their spaceship. It's this incredible comedy because when Jason realizes what has happened, he tries to convince the Thermians that he is, he is so much less than his own dreams. He's not brave, he's not courageous, he's not resourceful, he's just one more pretender in the crowd. But the Thermians don't believe him. They're convinced he is so much more than he knows, and not just Jason, but every one of the actors in, in his crew. The whole crew then gets beamed up to space, thinking that they're following Jason to another gig, but they soon realize it's no longer pretend. They're actually under attack from the evil Emperor Ceres. And so to save the kingdom of Thermia and to save the kingdoms of this earth, they have to no longer pretend to be the brave commander Peter Taggart, the ingenious chief science officer Dr. Lazarus, the resourceful tech sergeant Chin, and the beautiful communications officer Tawny Madison. They can no longer pretend to be these things that they have pretended to be for their own self-centered reasons. They can no longer pretend to be these things. They now have to actually be these things in order to save each other and the universe. In other words, at a certain point, love calls to them, and they have to lose their lives to find them. They each confess that they're not what they pretended to be, and then they become what they had always hoped to be, and then this happens.
Great try, Vitani. Once again, Commander Peter Taggart. Board again, Commander Peter Taggart and his crew. They return, they return to the crowd, but in an, an entirely new way, not pretending to be what they hope to be, but as the heroes that they, that they truly are. In the movie Galaxy Quest, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of space, is the result of Thermians building their society around the dreams of people. And then that kingdom causes those people to become what they had always hoped to be. But according to Scripture, the dreams of people on earth have always been the result of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of space building uh, people. But that kingdom is not 1,500 light years away in space or 2,000 years away in, in, in time or 5,000 miles away. It's at hand right now. It's at hand, and check this out, I think it's always been at hand. In other words, it's not your dreams that create the kingdom. It's the king and his kingdom that creates your dreams. In other words, it wasn't an accident that Peter grew up in a fishing village by the Sea of Galilee, dreaming of fish, trying to catch fish, and hoping to be a fisherman. The king and his kingdom were shaping Peter's dreams, desires, and longings so that he would choose to be what he truly is. And, and yet, and yet at the right time, Peter did have to sacrifice his dreams in order to become his dreams. Peter had to lose his psyche to find it. Peter had to follow the king to live in his kingdom. Well, I hope you see that there's this like fascinating correlation between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our God, the kingdom of, of heaven. So when John sees a new heaven and a new earth, do you remember what he, he calls it? New heaven and new earth. It's like the old, but it's new. When the new Jerusalem comes down, remember what he calls it? He calls it Jerusalem. It's like old, and yet everything is, is new. It comes down out of heaven, out of the atmosphere, and yet some, in some amazing way, it had been there all along. The city and the kingdom. A city or a kingdom is more than a crowd. Although evil constantly tempts every kingdom to just be a crowd, millions of people thinking the exact same thoughts, doing the exact same things, living in the exact same cement boxes. Evil tempts every kingdom to be just a crowd, but a real, crowd, a real kingdom, a real kingdom is not an envelope containing more envelopes. It's not a million copies of just the same thing. A, a, a city, a kingdom is made up of fishermen and shepherds and bakers and candlestick makers and each of them is made up of individual and unique hopes and dreams and successes and failures. There's, see, there's this fascinating correlation between the kingdom of this earth and, and the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes the relation is direct and sometimes the relation is in, in, inverted. Sometimes it's direct. I mean, it's not an accident that Peter caught fish before he caught men. It's not an accident that David and Moses, they both, they herd sheep before they, they shepherded sheep, before they shepherded Israel. It's not an accident that James and John are mending their fishing nets before they mend the church and that John is missing his dad before he talks about our Father in heaven. There's a direct relationship and an inverse relationship. It's not an accident that Paul was a Pharisee before he became the apostle of grace. Isn't that something? 
that absence of grace becomes a fountain of grace. It's not an accident that Jesus called John son of thunder, because remember he had this crazy temper. It's not an accident that Jesus called John son of thunder before he turned him into the apostle of love. It's the lack of mercy that becomes an absolute ocean of mercy. It's not an accident that Simon was a coward before Jesus informed him that he was actually Petros. Peter, the rock, Jesus knew his name. Even when Peter was cowering in fear, the Lord was telling him his name. <laughs> there's an inverse and there's an obverse, and sometimes both at once. Luke records that when Jesus calls Peter that day, he was actually catching, catching no fish. <laughs> you can read the story in, in Luke. He, he immediately followed, but it was after he was catching no fish. He, he wanted to be a fisherman, but he was just failing at a fisherman. I mean, maybe he wanted to, maybe it was, he just wanted to quit, and then this guy says, throw the net on the other side. If you know Peter's story, you know that happened more than once, both in Peter's effort to catch fish and in his effort to catch men. So anyway, maybe you have dreams. And you're just tempted to quit. But Jesus keeps calling. Come follow, come follow, come follow. He's not mocking you. He is creating within you the ability to be, the freedom to be, the desire to be, what you most deeply long to be, yourself. Remember how Sarah dreamed of having a child? Such a great story once you kind of back away and tell it in modern English. But she dreamed of having a child. And one day she overheard God's word speaking to her husband, old Abraham. God said this, I will surely return to you, Abraham. And I think it was in the spring. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Remember what happened? Sarah laughed and then she said this, After I'm worn out and Abraham is old, shall I again have pleasure? Literally, she says, shall I again have Eden? Means delight, pleasure. In the Revelation, Eden has turned into a kingdom constructed of millions of unique and individual people united in this symphony of love and praise. But you see, like Sarah, like Peter, we're all tempted to lose hope in Eden. You must not, we must not stop hoping in Eden or even our own particular brand of Eden, we mustn't lose hope. God has been nurturing that hope. We mustn't lose hope, but we do have to lose ourselves to find the hope. We will return to Eden, but we will receive it in an entirely new way. Peter uh, mustn't lose hope. He mustn't lose hope in fishing, but he must stop fishing to become a fisher of men. Sarah mustn't lose hope in, in Eden, but she must stop pimping her maidens. Remember the story? She keeps giving Abraham slave girls. She must stop pimping her maidens and start surrendering herself to a groom to experience Eden in a new way. Paul mustn't lose hope in the righteousness of God, but he must surrender the Pharisee to become the righteousness that he hopes for and actually a much greater righteousness than Paul had ever imagined. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now that's an unfortunate uh, translation, but it's not really the translator's fault, it's the fault of our language English. In Greek, there are two words translated life. One is the word zoe, and Jesus is the zoe. zoe. He said, I am the life. There's only one life. The other word is suki or psyche, and we each have a different psyche. It's your particular life, how life expresses himself in the particular vessel that is you. Your psyche is that thing that came into existence when God breathed his spirit, his breath, his life into the, into the dust. So there is one life and at least 7.7 .7 billion psyches. 7.7 .7 billion vessels of clay. Your psyche is utterly unique and individual. Your psyche is yourself.
It's your stories and your dreams, your disappointments, your strengths and weaknesses, your thoughts and feelings. So whoever would lose his psyche for the sake of the life, and I am the life, said Jesus, whoever would lose his psyche for my sake will find it, said the life. One day it struck me as this utterly revolutionary idea It's my psyche that I lose, and it's my psyche, not some other psyche. It's my psyche that I find. It's myself that I lose and myself that I find. You see, I think we're each terrified to surrender our, our psyches, ourselves, our lives to Jesus for fear that, he, for fear that he'll turn us into something else, you know? Like, like one more saint sitting on one more cloud, stroking one more harp in the crowd of heaven. We're terrified that it'll turn us into something else or someone else when all along he is longing to turn us into ourselves. He knows exactly who you are. And he's been t telling you who you are since the day that you were born. But you can't become who you long to be until you lose yourself and find yourself in him and him in you. The king. The king of the kingdom of heaven. We're each tempted to hide ourselves from the king for fear that he'll turn us into something other than ourselves, just one more saint in his crowd. We're tempted to hide from the spirit of truth, who is the spirit of, of life, the spirit of love. Instinctively, man has a tactic he uses against spirit. Let us form a crowd. Those are the words of Soren Kierkegaard. We're all tempted to guard our psyches from the king by joining a crowd, getting the approval of the crowd, but then we become a product of the crowd. We gain the world and forfeit our psyche. We become one more envelope, full of envelopes, full of nothing. You see, I think that's why Jesus always finds a way to call us. At some point, he'll do this. If it hasn't happened already, and I don't know, maybe it happens more than once, but he'll always find a way of calling us away from the crowd. And it's why he wasn't tempted by the crowd. But he'll find a way of calling us away from the, He calls us to follow him, to lose ourselves for his sake. He calls us to lose ourselves for his sake and then find ourselves for his sake and the sake of everyone trapped in the crowd. He calls us away from the crowd and then sends us back to the crowd in order that the crowd might become a kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, he He's going to teach us to pray this. Thy kingdom come. Maybe you heard this before. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As it is in heaven. That's the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. In other words, the kingdom comes when his will is done in the things that are at hand. All, uh, all around you. In Matthew 12, Jesus casts this demon out of this guy and he says, if I did this by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom has come upon you. If I did this, if, if it is by the Spirit of God and God is love and his Spirit is life, if it is by the life of love, the kingdom has come upon you. But you see, the kingdom doesn't come then from, from some other place 1,500 light years away or 2,000 years in the future. The kingdom isn't imposed on your psyche from some place outside of your psyche, like an army or a law or a commandment written on stone or in a book. Luke 17, Jesus says this, it's not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It is within you like a law written on, on your heart. The kingdom, the kingdom is not you, and it's not of you, and yet it becomes you. The kingdom is all that freely submits to the dominion 
of the king. You see, your soul really is like an envelope, but no two envelopes are just the same. And none of the envelopes are empty. In every envelope there is a throne. I honestly don't know how people miss this. I mean, I, I believe that one day time as we know it will come to an end and, and all that stuff, but, but I don't know how people miss this, that the throne of God is not in the Orion Nebula. It's not somewhere over in the Middle East. It's not a thousand years in the future. And those, the, the Orion Nebula is not the center of the universe. The throne of God is in your soul. Your unique and individual soul. And until you surrender that throne to the king of love, you won't be able to live your life or become who you truly are. And no one can tell you who you are or what you are to do until you do. Fisherman fish. Shepherds shepherd. Managers manage, poets write songs, and I don't know which one you are. People always want to tell, uh, want me, they, they want me to tell them what to do, which means they want me to give them some laws, which means they want to join a crowd in which everyone is just the same. In, in a weird way, we actually compete at being the same in a crowd. We compete at being the same. You cannot compete at being yourself. But you can compete at running the 100-yard dash, which means that you could become the very best at something that really means nothing. And all the while, God is calling you to be the best at being you, which means everything. I can't tell you what to do except to be the best at being who you truly are. And you can only become who you truly are by surrendering the throne in the depths of your soul, for then you and Jesus will live the life that is you. The truth will live the life that is you. The way will live the life that is you. Love will live the life that is you, and love will become incarnate. God wants to live your life in communion with you, together on the throne, the two of you. Then you will become who you truly are, and you will enjoy who everyone else truly is. You will feel no pain and yet experience everyone's pleasure. A crowd is a cancer, and the kingdom is a body, and you are members of that body. Every member is free. For all members surrender to the direction of the head, and each member lives, for it chooses to love, it chooses to bleed, and each and every member is different. Not only can you be different than every other member in the body, not only can you be different than every other member in the body, you must be different than every other member in the body, or you wound the entire body. In other words, we all need you to be you and never anyone else. So don't give up on your dreams, but surrender your dreams and become who you truly are. God wants you to freely love who you truly are. He wants you to love his dream, and his dream is you. Several years ago, I was kicked out of my denomination because I believed that Jesus had spoken to me and asked me to follow Soon after that, some friends, uh, they bought me this sword. <laughs> Hangs here on the back of the cross. They, they bought me this sword, and they said, Peter, I don't know why, but God asked us to buy this and give it to you, so here you go. <laughs> I think I know what it means. It means that even though I often want to quit, 
I'm to swing the sword. I'm to keep preaching the word. I'm to slay the ancient dragon and maybe even go where no man has gone before. <laughs> and I know that sounds pathetic. Maybe it is. Or maybe I'm Zorro. And maybe you are not less than you know. Maybe you are just far, far, far more than you know or, or more than you have even begun to imagine. Whatever the case, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, repent. So the king took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. So I invite you to come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and then surrender the throne. And then you might ask Jesus, Jesus, where do you want to go? The truth will tell you. The life will tell you. Love will tell you. The way will tell you when you need to know. <laughs> I always wanted it in advance, and I think that's because I always want to turn him into a law, but he will tell me when I, when I need to know. He may take you over the sea, may take you to the moon, may take you back to a job that you've worked at for 30 years, doing exactly what you've done for 30 years, but if he's on the throne, you'll do it in a new way. The kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see your goodness in the land of the living. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, do you mean this is heaven? I'm disappointed. <laughs> well, you just wait. The consummated kingdom of heaven has no ringing in the speaker system. And everybody's uh, will is submitted to the king. So, so I think that means that when everybody's will is submitted to the king, everything is good, and you even will have the freedom to say to that chair, turn into a horse or whatever. I don't know. I don't know how it works, but, but I do know this. You won't be disappointed. I mean, maybe you're disappointed because you think, oh, heaven is this place where I sit on a cloud and forever? Yeah, that sounds so boring. Do you, do you like to fish? Any of you like to fish? Yeah, Todd does. Well, there's this great verse in Isaiah, right, Todd, where it talks about old men fishing in the Dead Sea because the sea is now living and full of fish. See, I think if you want to fish, it's like you, you haven't yet even begun to imagine how wonderful it is to live in, in that kingdom. So you won't be disappointed. You won't be disappointed in the kingdom, and you won't be disappointed in Jesus, and you won't be disappointed in you. In fact, I think you'll look in his eyes and you'll see yourself reflected in the mirror of his eyes and you'll think, oh God, there's no one else that I would, that I would rather be than who you have made me to be. You need to know that he's making you new and he makes all things new and that he's good. And the reason you need to know that is that he's calling to you all the time. Right? You'll be in a crowd, someone will say something and you'll think, oh, I really should speak the truth. Well, that's the king calling to you. You need to trust that he's good, that when you speak the truth, it's not because he hates you, he wants to beat you up, he wants you to become who you are. Or you're in a crowd and, and you know that you need to love somebody, but it just, you, there are complications, you know. Well, the king is calling to you. Or you're just incredibly depressed and the life is, is calling to you. It's important that you, that you know his voice and I think the immediately thing is that he brings you to the point where there's no debate. You just say, oh yeah, I, I will do that because I trust that he's good. He's, he's good. Because you see, there really is an outer darkness. 
I, I don't believe it can last forever, but there's a Hades, there's an outer darkness, and that's uh, for people that just do not want to surrender the throne. Ultimately, I believe we will all surrender the throne. We'll all come to believe that the king, the king is good. But, but um, you can walk in the kingdom right now. In other words, everything I'm saying is simply believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like prayer, members of the prayer team are down front with here. They would, they would love to pray with you. I mean, a lot of times God wants someone else to help us surrender the throne. If you'd like to talk, we invite you to go out to the narthex and hang out for a long time and meet some people you don't know. See you next week.